This is the Blood Red podcast from the Liverpool Echo, giving you the inside track on all the big talking points from Anfield. Time once again on Blood Red to rewind the clock and head back to September 2004. Rafa Benitez's Reds were heading for their first away Champions League group game of the season. Off the back of a trip to Old Trafford and a home thrashing of Norwich City, Europe beckoned once more. I'm Guy Clark and this is the road to Istanbul. As every Champions League match day, we chart Liverpool's road to the 2005 final 15 years on. Through the course of the season, we aim to tell the story behind Liverpool's most unlikely of all their European Cup triumphs. Of course, until last summer, their most recent, the cherished number five. Alongside me, as he was last time out, is a man whose encyclopedic knowledge is to be commended, and that is Dan K. Dan, how are you? I'm all right. A little bit stunned at being described as encyclopedic, but I'll, <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> and I suppose over the last 15 years, a 1-0 defeat away in Olympiacos may, may have slipped through the gap somewhere, mate. Yeah, I wouldn't say it's it's one of those games that kind of like I've spent an awful lot of time thinking or dwelling over in the last 15 years but it was very much part of you know, the name Olympiakos is very much woven into the fabric of Liverpool's European history now um, obviously because of these two matches in 2005 and also the two matches in the UEFA Cup of 2001 and um, once you know once I kind of sat down and thought about it a little bit I, you know there, there is there are some elements of this night that I do remember and one of perhaps one of the most fitting ones bearing in mind where we are at the start of another European journey this season. I do remember going out to watch to watch this Olympiacos match with a couple of friends in uh, the Navigator pub um, on East Prescott Road, Queen's Drive Junction, um, which has quite a bit of significance in a more recent context because that was where there were thousands and thousands of people clambering all over that lovely white art deco uh, exterior to the pub. Uh, to watch the the homecoming parade when it went past on uh, June the second this year. Great sort of memories, as you say, for that. Looking at this game, one 0 defeat, as you mentioned, away in Greece to Olympiakos, and given the significance of obviously having played them a few years before in the UEFA Cup, yeah. but also then this Champions League sort of ties as they were to play out. This one in the September, the one in the December that, of course, we'll get on to as we go through the road to Istanbul and had such significance. But I suppose one of the real key things to this game was the fact it was kept to 1-0 because goals would become so crucial in the number number of them. Absolutely, Guy. I mean, and obviously we wouldn't have realised the true significance of that until we got to, obviously, the, the sixth and final game of the group, which was the, re- the return fixture against the Greeks. And obviously, as we all know, and as we'll get on to in... in Further down the line, Liverpool had to win by either 1-0 or by two clear goals. Um, Liverpool weren't great that night. It was still it was probably only what, even with the cup games, maybe the eighth or ninth game of Benitez's reign. So he was still very, very much trying to get his principles through to his players. Um, and I think by this, by this point in the season, kind of like mid to late September, they still hadn't won an away match. They'd drawn the opening game away to Tottenham and then they'd lost away games to uh, Bolton and Manchester United, I think. Of course, they had won the away game in Graz. So I suppose yeah, that technically might count as, 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 a, as a first away win for Rafa. But it, it, always, it always felt like it was going to be a tough test. And I think that was part of the relief in at least making sure we got three points on the board from the first game. Um, with the with the two 0 win over Monaco um, at Anfield, Olympiacos were quite a well established European team. Liverpool were still really kind of finding their feet um, in uh, at the top table of European competition. They got only our third season in the Champions League proper, 
Uh, and they have players of the likes of uh, Rivaldo. Um, Giovanni as well. Giovanni, the Barcelona, former yeah. Barcelona and Brazilian star as well. Stoltardis, who of course scored the goal. Um, I'm struggling to remember. Nicopolidis, the goalkeeper, was yeah, was a very well established goalkeeper. Just and won the Euros. Of course, yeah. of course they had. They, they had just won the Euros. <clears throat> and with how much of a kind of cliche or not, I, 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 you know, I think probably results do tend to back it up a little bit. But the thing with with certain teams and Olympiacos, you know, well established European team, always had this reputation of being very, very strong and difficult to beat at home. You'd always fancy your chances away from home. There was always that feeling that they didn't really travel well. But away from home, it was you always knew you were going to be kind of up against it. So I think really most supporters, having got a win in the bank, would have quite happily taken a point from this second group game if Liverpool were able to achieve that. But unfortunately on the night, they weren't. Yeah, and like you say, with Olympiacos, I suppose a bit like sort of how Celtic have sort of gone on in the Champions League as their mm. time and it has gone on group games they've, they've tended to drop out in the group but at home certainly they, they have caused it's, good anal- it's, a, good, yeah. it's a good comparison actually because the um, it must be a source of, you know, well I don't know a few Celtic fans I know it's a source of great frustration for them in that if you look at their record over the last 10-15 years they've beaten pretty much everybody at home in the Champions League Barcelona um, Manchester United um, I think some, you know, a couple of the top Italian teams. They, they've, I know they at least held AC Milan, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. They've, yeah, they've, they've, the Parkhead is a, is a real bear pit on European night. But year after year after year, they struggle to get a point away from home, and and all too often that's why they they usually end up failing um, to to progress. And I would imagine for for some, for some of the Greek teams, um, I mean, in actual fact, my first ever European game was. 10 seasons before this, the first leg of the semi-final 84-85 against Panathinaikos. That was the first leg at Anfield and Liverpool, and you know, to kind of back up that theory, Liverpool won 4-0 and it wasn't even a particularly good Liverpool side that year. This is the Liverpool team that finished about 15 to 20 points behind Everton, who were champions that year. And we ended up winning the second leg 1-0 in Greece as well. So um, there was always that kind of speck of hope in, in that you knew you weren't facing one of the real elite European teams that were that were consistently threatening semi-finals and finals, but the knowledge that this was very much a, a new Liverpool team, Liverpool team still finding their feet, there was a concern going out there that you know if they didn't get it right, um, they might walk away with nothing, and obviously that's that's what proves to be the case. Yeah, and actually, it was the first time that Liverpool would suffer sort of defeat like that to Greek opposition there against um, Olympiakos. As you say, and them in in the time building on the stadium, they have gone on, as you say, to really carve out a niche for themselves in that. But looking at the team that night, then two changes from the side that had beat Monaco. Stephen Warnock and Diddy Herman came in. Harry Kuehl dropped out with Warnock coming in and sort of showed the way that Rafa Benitez wanted to perhaps keep this quite a cagey and tight game, knowing it was probably going to be a hostile environment going to. But Herman in for Gerrard, not really through any tactical decision, that more through necessity. Well, yeah, but well, only after you reminded me just before we started that that um, Stephen Gerrard had broken a metatarsal in that that defeated Old Trafford, which I think was eight days previous. It was a Monday night game, yeah. so obviously that was a, you know a significant blow to this Liverpool team that was still very very much kind of a bit wet around the ears and really I think still trying to kind of take on board the new way of playing and particularly obviously as I'm sure we'll get onto zonal marking defensively that that Raf that uh, Benitez was trying to indoctrinate within them. And uh, obviously to to you know to miss out on 
a player like Steven Gerrard, who was obviously, as this campaign would go on, would prove himself to be one of the absolute top players in Europe that season. Was it was a real blow to was a real blow to us, and and looking at the you know, the, the names in 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 that lineup, um, <laughs> you know, the, the, and and really the options we had to come off the bench. I mean, I noticed that yeah, you know, when Haman was substituted with eight, with eighty two minutes gone, and was replaced by Salif Dial. Yeah, and um, when Liverpool need a goal, when Liverpool needs a goal, but but yeah, you know, there weren't an awful lot of options on the bench. I mean, Cisse, obviously, this was before he had his broken leg at Blackburn. Cisse had come on ten minutes or so before he placed Yosemi on seventy three. Uh, Harry Kuehl was a half-time substitute for Stephen Warnock but you know <laughs> fast forward 15 years and you look at the kind of options Liverpool do have on the bench now it, it, the, the team that Rafa really set, as we obviously went on to appreciate as time got on Benitez was great at setting a team up for this kind of game to go somewhere be obdurate be hard to, be, be hard to beat grind out a result and um I mean, you know, even though it was far from being a memorable performance, apart from one moment from a set piece when uh, Stoltidis scored Elin Parker's goal in the first, fairly early on in the game, the first 20 minutes, they did, you know, apart from that moment, they did, they did manage to keep them out. And had we walked away with a 0 nil, I'm sure that would have been an eminently uh, satisfactory result on the night. But um, it wasn't to be. And um, having, having read through come of the match reports. One of my enduring memories of this game is, I think I mentioned this to you the other day, is about the referee who was none other than yep. Pierre-Luigi Colina, who I think probably in the, he was coming towards the end of his career. Now, the irony is that um, it was actually early on in the following season, the Champions League qualifier that he refereed between Villarreal and Everton, that he kind of wrote his name into... I'll say Merseyside footballing folklore because I wouldn't say it's something that Liverpoolians bang on about an awful lot. But obviously he has gone down in Everton infamy yep. along with the likes of Clive Thomas and Alan Robinson and some of the other referees that um, they feel wronged them. Um, but at this stage, I, like everyone else, was kind of, I've always been a big fan of Italian football, Serie A. So I was kind of, you know, aware of Kalini with his big bald head like mine, his big bulging eyes, not quite like mine. Um, and remember, you know, when he was doing our game, thinking, oh, well, you know, we'll, we should hopefully get a fair crack of the whip. Now, having read back through the report I, you know, and, and my own memories, I can't remember one standout incident where he massively stitched this up or he massively got something wrong. But I just remember a growing sense of frustration as the game was going on that this referee has given us nothing, you know. And, you know, it's the old story in the book. Often, you know, you, get, you tend to get more breaks when you're a good team and you're playing well. And when you're not playing well, then... The, you know, the breaks and the decisions tend to go against you maybe that little bit more. But I do remember at the end of the game thinking, he needs to retire now, Wim Kalina. He's, you know, he, he's, he's finished. If, 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 that, if that's his level of refereeing a top, you know, in an intimidating atmosphere, a top European game just gives everything to the home side, then maybe he shouldn't be refereeing anymore. And then obviously nine months later, we were um, mildly amused, shall we say, at, uh, at, his, at, his, at his exploits at our dear Merseyside neighbours. But... They're the little things that stick in your mind as a football supporter. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. We spoke before about Benitez setting teams up for these away games. Whilst this was by no means a vintage name of Liverpool players on the team sheet that Rafa Benitez had to work with and therefore the pragmatic approach certainly did work. Still somewhat of a culture shock for Liverpool to completely go away from home. You, I mean, you look at the team, Hossamy and Finnan on one side and Warnock and Risa on the other, very much boxing off 
the midfield and basically just trying to kill anything the home team do want to do. Yeah, um, you know it. It wouldn't this this kind of period in Liverpool's history. Um, it w- it wouldn't be one for the purists, shall we say? You know that there was arguably very few characters. I've I've, I've said this a few times in the past. Very few characters in in my lifetime, anyway, have polarised uh, Liverpool supporters as much as Rafa Benitez. <clears throat> now I, I'm very much firmly in the pro Rafa camp. Yeah, you know, I I will always maintain that arguably his biggest legacy that he gave to Liverpool Football Club, even more than winning it in Istanbul, was being the first one to really shine a light on what the Hicks and Gillette ownership was doing to the club. And I, you know, I, I always felt that was kind of to the detriment of his own ability to manage but <coughs> to manage the team by the end. <coughs> but, but, but in a footballing sense, <coughs> there, was, there was and is, you know, and, and his other jobs in football will tell you this, a certain feeling that there is an innate conservatism to his approach sometimes, a pragmatism, shall we say. Now, you know, when, you, when as we'll get on to later in, as the year goes on, when you're able to go away to Turin and Chelsea in big, massive knockout games and come away with a clean sheet, that's massively an asset. But it was often used as a stick to beat him with. And you're looking at that team there, that would very much tie into that narrative that this was a very defensive Liverpool team sent out to do a pragmatic job, kill the game, sod the entertainment, let's walk away with the results. And that being said, you know, had they managed to defend that, that 18th minute free kick that ended up in the goal, everyone would have been saying what a great tactical job Benitez has done on the Greeks there. So you, know, you can't always have it necessarily both ways. But I think, you know... Obviously, as we've got to know the kind of man, you know, as time went on, the kind of manager he is, the kind of man he is, the kind of football obsessive he is, his, his ideas about the game, the way, he, the way he sees the game, the way he sees players, the way he sees defending. I think in this early stage, it was always going to be a bit scratchy yeah. when you, you know, you, you're trying to really drill into players a methodology that maybe doesn't come so naturally to them. No, I was going to say, and that's one of the things where, despite perhaps even the 2009 team that came so close to winning the title weren't really sort of swashbuckling and free flowing. They were at times, but not sort of not like throughout, yeah, team, not example, throughout the yeah. whole time. And yeah. yeah, throwing defensive principles out the window as Brendan Rogers's side so often did, but the team did build towards that. But sort of, I suppose, must have been somewhat of a culture shock from seeing how Julier's team did year on year until sort of the final year. Mm. Continue to build, continue to attack, and add more goals to the team and more points. And then all of a sudden, Benitez comes in first season, just goes, right, these are the principles and then we'll build from here. Yeah, I mean, that being said, I wouldn't say they were a million miles away in terms of their general outlook on the game, Julian Benitez. I think you could you could argue that Julian Benitez were kind of of a more similar ilk than, say, to Rodgers and Klopp. Yeah. Or I think Klopp, certainly over the time's gone on, has certainly built... You know, more of a pragmatic edge to his team because you know, obviously, with the defenders we've got now, we're able to keep clean sheets. Um, you know, there, there was Huli Huli's great teams really in the, in the early part of his reign were built on a very obdurate defence. Yeah, with Hippie, not just with Hippie and Ancho as the centre back, but with Carragher at fullback. Carragher at fullback. Um, Marcus Babel. Babel. Well, Babel really was quite attacking for yeah. for, for, for for some of Huli's kind of teams that he sent out. But what was particularly key to the Hule set it was Haman as being that defensive linchpin yep. in front of the back four. And that's why for me the kind of like the the so the the, the pivotal moment of Hule's reign 
really kind of sums up the point that it would. You know, I wouldn't want. I will be forever grateful to Gerard Hulley for what for what he did for Liverpool. He came into the club and kind of revolutionised it. Made you know, got us winning again. You know, made us walk with our chests out again. Took us to Cardiff. Gave me some wonderful, wonderful memories. Um, but the the second leg quarter final of the Champions League two thousand two way to buy Leverkusen. When we'd won the first leg one nil, we got ourselves in a position. I think when we were it was one all in the second leg with half an hour to go, and in every you know in kind of in conflict to every principle that he had exuded as Liverpool manager for the previous by that stage what getting on for three and a half four years, he took you know with, with half an hour to go in this crucial quarter final to get to the to the last four of the Champions League, he took a man off and put Smeacher on. And the game ran away from Liverpool. We lost. We lost four two on the night, four three yeah. in aggregate. And there's always been that feeling that that was the moment, really, that it always started to kind of turn for Gerard, and that upward trajectory began began to go in the other way. Now, you know, people have speculated over the past. You know, this of course came after. This was about six months after his uh, his very serious heart yeah. problem that he had. That obviously caused an eleven hour operation, nearly cost him his life. He'd actually only been back in the saddle as manager a month. He came back for the for the the qualifying game against Roma back in the back when there was two group yep. stages and he, and he had to he had to win that last home game. So you know, there's there's a it just went against everything. It, it just didn't make any sense that kind of substitution, uh, and and basically tied into that idea that um, he had maybe lost sight of the things that his Liverpool team had been good at. So I, I think there was there was very much a case of trying to restore that kind of defensive solidity. And pragmatism, while at the same time building on it to to make a team that was capable of, um, you know, overcoming whatever challenge was put in front of it. And some statistics that sort of bear that out: the, the defensive need, especially through a group game, to just make sure you pick up the points you need to get yourself qualified for the knockout stage. That this was the first goal, obviously Liverpool conceded in the group stage, having beat Monaco two nil. One of only three goals to be conceded, of course, away in Monaco, the 1-0 defeat and the 3-1 at home to Olympiacos. Yeah. And 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 going along with that, the fact that in these games that both teams only scored in one of the six group games, obviously the game again against Olympiacos, the final one, because there were nil nils against Deportivo and one nil wins and defeats obviously against Depor and it was a tight group. It, yeah. it was a tight old group. I mean, you know, Monaco had been Previous year, previous season's finalists, um, Deportivo, I think, had got to the court. Did they get to the semis, semis. The year before? That's right, because they beat Milan. Yeah. And then, was it Porto beat them? Mourinho's Porto, Mourinho's Porto beat them? Yeah, I believe it was. Because yeah. Monaco beat Chelsea, didn't yeah, they? Monaco, yeah, Monaco, yeah. Morientes playing, yeah. So, so, you know, two teams that had got, that had got very far in the previous season's competition, plus... Um, Olympiacos, of course, yeah. who were who were very well established. So it was it was but it was it was a tough group, particularly for an inexperienced Liverpool team. Um, and you know the results bore that out, and that's why you know it went very very much dramatically right to the wire of the final stages of the final group game. And do you feel around this time, so with the new manager coming in and then breaking his metatarsal against Man United as Steven Gerrard did. I know it's romantic to look back and say, oh, this could have been sort of the time around where Steven Gerrard just 
waiting to get back, obviously, into the autumn when he did in the late mm. November when he returned. But this sort of the moment that he'd had the moment, obviously, the Worthington Cup final against Man United 2003. But when he came back into the side, this was the time now he said, I'm going to be the leader of this team. I'm going to step yeah, up. And I think this this game would have been almost about exa- almost exactly a year after he was formally given the captaincy, yeah. which I think was in the the previous season's UEFA Cup tie against Olympia Ljubljana, I think, from Slovenia. And I think that was one of the early early games in you know, kind of like autumn 03. So he'd been he'd been club captain for a year by this stage. Um, he'd have been away with England to the Euros in 2004, which you know, they, I think they got knocked out by Portugal in the quarters, didn't they? Yeah. Obviously, <clears throat> who they had gone, Rafa had come in. Um, but I suppose the other kind of key element that happened that summer was the departure of, of his of his mate and sparring partner, my sparring partner, Michael Owen to Real Madrid. So, you know, as we'll get on to, particularly you know, with the return fixture in December, when the issue of Gerard's future kind of snowballed as the season yeah. went on. I don't really remember it being talked talked about too much in the early part of the season, but obviously we're all aware that Mourinho would come into Chelsea. These Abramovich millions that they'd been spending for the best part of a year now. Probably even by that, I can't remember how the league table looked at this stage, but what I remember about that season is that no one other than Chelsea ever looked likely at winning well, that league. I, I was going to say, if you look at the Premier League, how, how it was sort of shaping up at the time. Liverpool was sitting in eighth. Arsenal were top at the time, obviously still invincible at this stage. Yep. Nine points ahead of Liverpool. Chelsea, I think, was second just behind Arsenal. And Everton at the time was six points Ahead of Liverpool on 16. We're already six points yeah. clear of Liverpool, really. That's, that's very interesting. Because obviously, this this, you know, this was Moyes' second full season, third full season? Third. Third full season. And obviously, they finished fourth and had a terrific year that year and you know, beat us at Goodison. Um, but even, you know, I think so early in the season, the fact that, you know, that already the pace being set, but I think Chelsea only lost one game away to Man City yeah. that year. Um, so it was already becoming very clear that Liverpool had finished probably the best part of 25, 30 odd points behind Arsenal's Invincibles the year before. And there was already that feeling that we're getting left behind in the league. So <clears throat> we best give a good account of ourselves in Europe. And, um, you know, we'd made a decent start with that, with that 2-0 win over Monaco. But this this result kind of put the cat back amongst the pigeons again and put put really added pressure on the the forthcoming doubleheader against um, against Deportivo, which would follow later in the autumn. Yeah, and of course, whilst our focus is on Liverpool and the road to Istanbul and what was going on with Liverpool the way through, take a brief look away from what was happening with Liverpool. And this wasn't really the game of the night, unsurprisingly, away in Olympiacos, because oh, Old Trafford, that, yeah. a certain 18-year-old from Merseyside, was yeah. making his Manchester United bell. He was, he was. He scored a hat-trick, didn't he, Wayne Rooney? He did 6-2 um, win over, over, over uh, Fenerbahce. Fenerbahce, that's right. I remember it was a Turkish team. Um, yeah, so the, the, the Rooney, having just uh, decided to leave Everton uh, and join a club like Manchester United that then, as now, spends most of its time singing about Scousers. Rankled <laughs> then, still still rankles now. Um, yes, he, his... That that was very much the the story of the night, and it seemed like it was going to be the story of the season. Um, I'm trying to do that. United got out of the group. Yeah, they did that season. I they think lost it was the Milan, following. Didn't they? Yeah, yeah, they did. I think In it the was last the f- sixteen. Seem to think. Yeah, they may have done. I know they lost to 
Kaka's Milan side in 2007, of course. That's right, because well, because that was the year that we were. That was the semi final. Yeah, and we were playing Chelsea in the other semi final, yeah. and there was the danger of all the. And I say danger because. You know, there was a possibility two years in a row of Liverpool playing United in the Champions League final in 2007 2008 in Moscow on both occasions. In 07, they lost the semi. In 08, we lost the semi. And even if obviously the thought of you know winning, beating Manchester United to win the European Cup is arguably hard to see of something, hard to conceive of something bigger or better than that. At the time, anyway, the thought of... Um, what might happen off the pitch, particularly in cities like Moscow, where they're not particularly well-renowned for their sensible or practical yeah. policing, policing of, strategy, of, of, yeah, yeah. It, or approach. I, I do remember, I do remember walking out of Stamford Bridge after that game when we lost to Chelsea, thinking, "Well, obviously, I'm gutted we lost the Chelsea semi-final," but that feeling of dread I had in my stomach of us and United in Moscow. At least that wasn't going to happen. So. Um, it nearly happened in 2002, that Leverkusen game I mentioned before. Um, we've we've still never played United in the European Cup. Obviously, we played them in the Europa Cup a couple of seasons ago and knocked them out um, thanks to Philip Coutinho's tremendous chip. But it just, you know, round about that time of, of you know, in the early part of this of this century, you know, in, of that decade, it seemed like almost every year both clubs were on the verge of having a real kind of head-to-head in Europe and it didn't happen and maybe with hindsight it was for the best. <laughs> and we're looking at the group then and mentioned obviously Man United, Wayne Rooney, but away from uh, away from that and in Liverpool's group, Monaco beating Deportivo 2-0 in Monaco, meaning you mentioned before the group was tight. We've got it here. Olympiacos moved top on four points. Mm. Then Liverpool and Monaco both on three because they both won one and lost one. And Deportivo, despite reaching the previous year's semi-final, as we've said a number of times already, just on one point. And obviously it was them home and away in a doubleheader next to uh, next to come for Liverpool. Yeah, and so there was, um, you know, I think it, losing this game, I think we were at least comforted a little bit by the fact that the doubleheader against Deportivo would start with a home fixture. Um, and he felt, well... You know, they're not a bad side, Deportivo. We'd all seen them put four past Milan the previous season. We knew it wouldn't be a gimme. But at least there, you know, there was there was some kind of hope and optimism that with the next game being at home, if you can get yourself six points after three games, that's, you know, that's a reasonable return. But I think even when the draw was made, I think you looked at it and thought, well, right, they're not all singing, all dancing names like Real Madrid, Barcelona, Bayern Munich. But for a team of Liverpool's relative European inexperience, this will be... This group will take a bit of getting out of, and obviously that, that very much proves to be the case. Yeah, very tight group indeed. Well, that wraps us up for for this edition here on the road to Istanbul. Fifteen years on, we'll be back, of course, in three weeks' time ahead of Liverpool's next outing in the Champions League, where, of course, Dan, we are looking ahead to those games against Deportivo to come. It is, and we're going to get a nice little jolly to Spain out of it. We can go and sit on the beach in La Coruña and have a couple of cervezas. I think if we got out the front door here, we'd be doing well. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, I can live with that. Cheers, Dan. Thanks a lot for, for joining me, and uh, thanks to you guys for listening, and hopefully you'll be back in, uh, in a few weeks. You've been listening to the Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo.